It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's returning guest is writer-director Mark Brown. Welcome to the show. Hello. Good to be back. Indeed. Indeed. Now, you've come on to share your three films that have impacted everything in adult life, and we'll get on to them soon, and we'll talk about how that works for anyone that's first time hearing the format. But first, I want to talk to you about your film, Dead on the Vine. Sure. That'd be lovely. Very exciting. Uh, so to keep that excitement up, do you want to tell people what Dead on the Vine is about? It's a thriller that uh, involves these two chaps who are just driving out of the lovely town of Rye on a sunny day. And then one of them has an epileptic fit and they have to pull into the nearest place, which happens to be this beautiful vineyard, um, which is run by these two women who are in preparation for a business-saving wine tasting. And all seems fine until the chap who had the epileptic fit wakes up and uh, he's not quite as stable (laughs) as people might like. And things happen and um, it all gets a bit dark and lots of moral choices have to be made. (laughs) And... uh, yeah, I don't want to give too much away at this point. But, no, no, uh, yeah, no, that sounds good. That sounds good. So, so uh, with that, with that in mind, then for a thriller like that, um, for you as a writer, um, where what was the kernel of the idea that got you on the on the path to writing Dead on the Vine? Where does it start for you? Um, it was sort of two ideas, um, and again, this is a film that could only have existed because COVID happened and okay. other things didn't exist. So the two main characters, the two guys, they came from a play that I was do- meant to be doing that we had had it booked in in Islington, uh, meant to be on April of that year. And what was that play called? Uh, it was called Punching Horses. Okay. And it was a uh, yeah, it was a very violent and funny play, I think. And I love those characters, and but they got it got shut down by COVID, so they just were sat doing nothing and. I'd also been pitching ideas for an outbreak film um, for no good reason, I can't think. And um, so, so when my producer Laura came to me and said, "I've got a vineyard," and I'd, I'd kind of come to her with a similar sort of idea of, "Can we make a film?" Because I'm going to go crazy in lockdown. Um, so she was like, "I've got this vineyard." what have you got? And I was like, I'll, I'll come up with an idea. So I just basically got these two, two crazy characters and transposed them into this, what was an outbreak idea about these two, these, these two criminals who end up in a farm and I changed it to a vineyard and, and then it added the, uh, the two 
female characters into it. And uh, yeah, kind of just went from there. This I was like, what? Because it was COVID, so we had no no cast, we had no extras, we had no things. We had these four actors yeah. essentially. And I was like, well, that, that's so I've got to work with that then. <laughs> and uh, so I just kind of extrapolated. Um, you know, why would why would a massive vineyard, seventy acre vineyard, have only two people on it? Why would these two guys be doing what they're doing? And uh, I collided, I collided them together, and uh, kind of decided chaos would happen. Obviously, <laughs> so so in that sense, then, so what for you was the was the main writing challenge of taking a play and turning it into this very different film, but using the same characters? It wasn't <clears throat> too big a challenge. I I saw the I got sent videos of the vineyard because um, my producer, her husband who was also the DOP on Dead and the Vine, hmm. he, he had, because they were mates with the guy at the vineyard, so they'd, he'd done all their publicity. He'd all his, he'd like done all these drone videos and all these um, publicity videos that were all beautifully cinematic and showed off the vineyard amazingly. So I had this map right in front of me of, of the location. And, I, and I, I think I work quite well once I know a location. I can, you know, I can think of the set pieces. I can think of the story. Hmm. around that and um and then we talked to the guy that ran the vineyard and he was telling us about how this sustainable vineyard worked and how the struggles of it and how like uh so kind of where the where the name came from dead on the vine that uh because we had quite a cold spring that the year before a lot of the a lot of the grapes had died on the vine oh wow i was like that's a cool title and um and so I thought, all right, these two these two women have a struggling business. You know, nature has done them in. There's a veiled nod to Brexit and the lack of, you know, people to work on things. Yeah, nice. And um, but I didn't want to date it. I didn't want to reference that directly. Um, and uh, yeah, the two characters they're toned down from the play. The play obviously you can be a lot more absurd and extreme. In, in, in theatre with with the realism mm. or the lack of realism in many ways. And so that wasn't gonna that wasn't gonna work on film. So they, they were kind of toned down and made a bit more realistic. And and I'd always wanted to do something to do with a bit like a bit men, mental health issues. But I'm not very good at doing the sort of serious Ken Loach kind of stuff. I can't I can't I can't be that uh that serious so so I took it in a bit more of a thriller horror horror way, and um, but I think it's true to life from my own experiences and the experiences of a lot of people I know. Um, but pushed pushed to a, a level that is a bit more cinematic, shall we say? Yeah, yeah. And it just and it also seemed to meld together quite well, I guess. I mean, I think you know you've been, <laughs> been locked down, been locked down for three months with no kind of focus. All of a sudden when you do have focus, you're, you're really focused. <laughs> and so I was, I was, uh, yeah, more than happy to spend all my brain power just working out these, these stories. And I, I kind of, I was very lucky to get a writing job just before lockdown. Mm. And that kind of bled into, into lockdown a bit. But once that finished, I was, yeah, I was, I was, I was just writing and writing, but it was just having that, that fear of, the industry never coming back 
Mm. It was like, what? I'm, I'm going to keep writing, but do, will these ever see the light of day? Any of these things that I'm putting down, and so to have an actual, an actual end game to it was was incredible for my mental health. <laughs> it was, I can uh, imagine. I could imagine. Yeah, really kind of pushed me through, and it also gave me a reason to avoid my children for a couple of hours a day because <laughs> homeschooling isn't fun. And uh, I love them to bits, but <laughs> you know, stuck in a house for the he would my my son would have been two and a half, and my daughter would have been like six. Mm. That was they they needed to run around a lot more than they could than they were able. So it was. Uh, they were just like two perpetually exploding hand grenades around my house all the time. My son was potty training as well, so he was just walking around naked and pissing on the floor. <laughs> and we were like, "No, we just we, you know he had like seven potties around the house, and he didn't he didn't manage to hit any of them for the first <laughs> month or so." So you know you can imagine you know people things were getting frayed within, within my brain and. So yeah, it was it was I was more than happy just to shut myself away and live in the world of these characters and uh, meld this story together. And you know, I sent it. I sent once once I'd got, once I'd done a first draft, you know, I sent it to a few people and got the feedback. And I think I think what I learned because we had this. I mean, the time frame of this film was insane. We we had the idea of doing it on May the 9th. Yeah, and we were on set. On July seventeenth. Wow. And you know, my producer Laura was incredible. She just managed to pull together this crew again, who are all in a similar position to us, just like desperate to be out of the house, desperate to be working. And two weeks in a beautiful vineyard in July was quite appealing to a lot of people. <laughs> and um and uh yeah, I, I put together the cast and but I guess I think what 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 might have uh, gone by the wayside a little bit was I think they we found this in the edit anyway that the script probably needed another another going over yeah because we ended up cutting out like ten <clears throat> twelve minutes from the beginning of the film I had I had this idea and it's sort of there in the film now but it was it, let's just say it was drawn out a little bit too much in the in the original uh in the in the first cut and uh so it was quite it was quite brutal doing the edit and just like ah uh, i bet chop 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 because it's some really nice dialogue but you know you know what it's like you know you, you write all these beautiful words mm. and then you get some script dude to go that has to go <laughs> and yeah. we didn't have the time i guess and to do to do that and so the yeah the first the second cut was uh was brutal well, look, um, congratulations on getting that film done and getting your world premiere under your belt. Uh, look forward to the UK premiere. Um, and thank you for sharing that experience. It's, it feels like every time I do one of these where, because obviously I'm, st- I'm in that run now where I'm talking to people of like, I did this during COVID. Uh, so it's kind of <laughs> like hearing the different stories and the reasons and the, the relief, the challenges, the fears and all that that, uh, that surround next, it. Next year, we know no COVID stories next year, we no. hope. But, so let's let's move into your three films that have impacted everything in your adult life. Um, before we get into it, let me just explain the rules to the new listener who's come to us. Mark has given me three film titles. We will work through the three film titles. Uh, we'll do them in release date order. 
Um, I'll I'll shout them out, and you can tell me, and then we'll start talking about the memories. Um, but there is a catch to this, a little bit of jeopardy. We're doing the three films, and we're doing it against the clock. So every time five minutes are up, we're going to hear this sound. Which you can hear perfectly well at your end there, Mark. Uh, I can hear it a bit, yep. <laughs> so, without further ado, let us, and I suppose I should just add as well, this is about films that made you sort of fall in love with the form, films, it's not necessarily the best films you've ever seen, it's more about how, you know, why we love film um, and what these films mean to your memories of watching it, who we saw them with, where we saw them, those kind of things, as much as it is about, oh, what happens in the film. <clears throat> so if I start at the oldest film in your three, it's 1971, and we've took a Canadian director out to Australia to shoot a movie called Waking Fright. So this is the one I saw the last of the three that I've chosen. And I saw it quite recently, and it, and it, and, and it was just, it blew my brains out as a film, Waking Fright. It's just, it's the best the best version of the descent into hell that I've ever seen. And it's, I just, I just couldn't believe it when I was like, and, and it's, you know, it's been so long since a film has like hit me. In how, the way how, out of interest then, if, 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 how did it come into your hands as it were to see it for the first time? How did that, what, what was the journey there? Well, I've, I've been wanting to see it for absolutely years. Yeah. And it wasn't a film that was easy to come by in any way, shape or form, just despite its critical acclaim and, as Ted Kotcheff will tell you a million times over in, in any interview, that it was like it was one of the first films to be accepted into the Cannes Classics section. It was like was it the first or second film ever to be shown twice yeah. at Cannes, and and I'd, I'd always been intrigued by Ted Kotcheff, the director, because he directed First Blood, mm-hmm. which was one of my first. And again, First Blood was going to be on this list. Um, I thought Waking Fright would be more interesting to talk about um, since I don't think that many people have actually seen it. Um, so Ted Kotcheff was always a director that I was like, why isn't he as big as you know all the other directors that are massive? And and um, and his his life story is incredible. It's it's really bizarre. Like his family all came over from Bulgaria, and most of his family were massacred in like in the in the thirties and forties, and it was really horrible. And then he came to. He lived in Cabbage Town in Canada, <laughs> which it's a real, a real place. <laughs> and um, so, Wake and Fright was like, uh, it wasn't it? Was he'd, he'd done loads of stuff. He did like amazing TV stuff in the UK, and um, but Australia um, was one of the few places that had a decent film because he was banned from America. That's right, because they thought he was a communist. So one of the few places that had a film industry outside of the UK was Australia. So he went to Australia to do Wake and Fright. And I don't know if anyone, if you haven't seen it, it's it's a hor- horrific at times, like with the, the famous kangaroo slaughter scene, which in fact was sort of almost documentary style. Well, it is, isn't it? I um, mean, there's a full disclaimer at the end that this was a real, a real kangaroo. Yeah, it was a real, he went on a real hunt. Ted Kotcheff's a, a proper sort of, wonderful lefty animal lover and so he refused to do any kind of real death but he did do real death but he just went on a hunt and filmed it yeah and it's, it's really horrifying and and visceral and, and but it did change the laws in australia 
But anyway, this is all sort of by the by of how it affected me. I just, I, I came by it after listening to Ted Kotcheff's autobiography, as you can probably tell. Mm. And, um, and I just, I just, I just splashed out and bought it on, on, on the special edition Blu-ray. And it took me ages to sit down and watch it because I just, I just knew I was going to be horrified by it. And I was, I was, but I was surprised how entertained I was by it. And I've always loved Australian cinema, always loved that kind of inherent humor that Australians just seem to have through all their, all their films. And, um, and this is no different. You know, it's like every, it's about a, um, an English teacher who is English, who's stuck in the outback and he has Mm. to essentially do his, do his time in the outback before he's allowed to come back and, and teach in normal civilization. Yeah. He's like, he's like paid a deposit. That he doesn't yeah, get, he, right. doesn't, he doesn't get returned to him unless he does his full see, his full that's, semester. That's right, yeah. And so he's trying to leave on the school holiday to go somewhere nice, and he just can't get out. And he keeps encountering all these. Well, well, he, he can get out. He just has a beer, and then that. Well, this, yeah, he, he keeps getting offered beers. He keep, it's, it sounds like a comedy, doesn't it? But it's not. Mm. And he keeps getting offered beers, but being made to drink them by these like insanely masculine Australians, and it just sends him down this um, rabbit hole of oh God's sake, like toxic masculinity of like hunting and fighting, and uh, you know, living in these towns where there's no women, so these men only have each other to kind of touch, and but their touching is fighting. You know, it's. It's an incredible um, essay on on toxic masculinity, and and then then you got Donald Pleasance, mm. who is this alcoholic doctor, who seems well, to be the only self aware person in the whole film, and yet he is almost the worst of them, you know. And well, there's we our the five, five minutes. minutes. <laughs> I, sh- I wanted to add, um, and I don't know whether whether Kotchev talks about this in his biography, but Peter O'Toole was originally earmarked to play the role that Gary Bond plays as the school teacher. Yeah. And and the guy, Gary, I think he looks just like Peter O'Toole, which is it's crazy. Yeah, he's like he's stunt double. And out of interest, did you, have you been and explored the the not What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers that it's adapted from no i haven't i haven't i i, I mean to but i haven't what's with with you yeah. mentioning donald pleasance what's fascinating about because i'm i remember this play this played at fright fest 
when it got remastered as a 2K ahead of the Eureka Blu-ray coming out. So I guess that would be 2014 or 15 or something. And I immediately got obsessed with it from that point on. So I got the Blu-ray when it came out. And then I got the book. And if you read the book, what's interesting is there is the, the, the part of Donald Pleasance isn't really in the film, isn't really in the book. Really? What they do for the adaptation is they take all the internal dialogue that goes on within the Gary Bond character and put that in the mouth of the do- of the Doctor character. So all oh, his fears are kind of subverted into attacks. It's really That's clever. Fantastic. It's really That's clever really as a piece of adaptation. character is an incredible character as well, the creation of Donald Pleasance. Yeah, I mean, it is, that is a complete cinematic creation. He's, very, very le- he's a character in the book, don't get me wrong, he's there. But he doesn't have any major role to play other than be part of the madness that's there. Whereas yeah, he is like the ringleader of the madness at some points. Yeah, because I mean, he's, his <clears throat> character is like this, he's a friend who, who gets, you realise more and more and more how utterly involved in the insanity of this place is. It's, it's really quite horrifying and, and uh, I, I just loved it. And I think I, I, I put him on a list the other day of, Oscar-worthy performances that no one knows about. And I was like, Donald Pleasance in Wake and Fright is just insanely good. Well, if, like, if, if, in this good. film, and if you see him in a film called Death Train, have you seen that one? Death Train, oh my God. I think I saw that like as a kid. Yeah, when he plays the cantankerous sort of police chief who who stirs his, stirs his tea with a dart. Yes, the dart, oh my God. I saw this like as a kid. I was this. this I, I've not seen it like as an adult at all. So I've got very vague. If you I mean, watch it as an adult, you just you kind of just it, you play these two films back to back and you just go. Donald Pleasance really was like an an under under underrated acting talent because he you're like yeah these left your roles. But anyway, sir, let us let us move forward. Yeah. Right, We're going to jump rules. forward three years to 1974 for the hugely <laughs> satirical, hugely funny, Blazing Saddles. Where does that where yeah. does that come in? Where do you where are you seeing that for the first time, and how are you seeing it? I saw that with my family on a Sunday afternoon at my auntie's house. Almost all the films I saw that I was inappropriately young to see were at my auntie's house on a Sunday afternoon. And uh, Blazing Saddles, I must have seen when I was six or seven years old. Okay, and and it, it, you know, it's it was just at the time, and still is one of the funniest films I've ever seen. The humour throughout is just incredible. The performance is it, it's set. I'd, I'd already seen Stir Crazy by hmm. this point, right? And so Gene Wilder was already one of my favourite actors, and and in this it just solidified him because I thought, oh wow, he's actually cool in this. He's a cool cowboy in this. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was saying this the other day that Gene Wilder is such an absolute legend. I saw a rhinoceros the other day. I don't know if you've seen that. The Ionesco. American film theater thing. It's crazy film, crazy film. But Gene Wilder is amazing. It's Gene Wilder and Zero Mostel again, and Cleveland Little as Bart. I thought it's just one of the coolest characters I'd ever seen as a kid. Mm. And and it and obviously as a kid I didn't understand quite a lot of the the satire of it and the 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 kind of the racism as in this the satirizing of the racism. Yeah. And but what it did was it made me ask all the questions to my parents on, and this is how it's, I feel like it's affected my life forever mm. because it gave me a, quite a clear, I think, understanding of racism from like such a young age. Because my, my parents just said, 
I was like, why are they being mean to him? Why are they calling him these names and stuff? And they said, well, he's because he's black. Mm. And I was like, so? And they're like, well, a lot of people in these olden days and <laughs> less olden days didn't like that. And so they, they didn't have black guys being sheriffs and stuff. And and so it made me it, it made me think. And these questions were, you know, things that were in my head from such a young age that I feel like it set me on a good path to uh <laughs> to understanding the world a bit more and uh, not being a terrible racist. And, and yeah, it's, it's just stayed with me forever. That's the, the cleverness of it, the brilliance of it. Mel Brooks, I, I, I feel, I think it's Mel Brooks's best film. A lot of people may disagree. Some people say Young Frankenstein, very good also. But Blazing Saddles for me is it. And I just, I love, Every set piece, every little moment, even like the the, the ending where it just <laughs> it breaks the, I don't know how many walls it breaks. I was going like to say, how wall. does a six-year-old you compute the breaking of a fourth wall? It just seemed, it just seemed normal. I don't know. Again, I wonder, I wonder how much that played a part in me getting into film because it, it obviously showed the artifice of film. And I wonder, yeah, did did that like, play a part in me uh you know thinking oh these things are made right this is not and this is not a historical document this is a something that some guys put together i mean obviously i, re- I recognized mel brooks as the number of characters that he played as well i mean my dad let me he was like you're gonna like this film son there's farting in it hmm. and he was correct and if anyone's seen any of my short films and my first film guardians you'll have you realise that I like that kind of humour. <laughs> Head on the vine. I mean, it is, of it is amazing for what is a very sophisticated takedown of, the, you know, not exactly a hard thing to take down, but of the wrongs of the wrongs of racism in society versus, you know, a not racist society. And then an iconic scene in it is just a bunch of men <laughs> eating beans and farting, which is the most simplest of absurd jokes. It, it 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 completely runs the gamut of every level of sophistication from yeah. the puerile to the absolute brilliant, and and that's why it's amazing because it's it's it has a lack of arrogance to it because I'm gonna, yeah. I'm going to play every level every level here I'm going to have farts I'm going to have dancing I'm going to have fourth wall breaking I'm going to have double entendres I'm going to have stupid wordplay and I'm going to have um, epic takedowns of uh, racist America. <laughs> you just you don't you don't get that anymore. No, <laughs> and, you've got that, and you've also got that. There's that lovely that lovely moment where where Cleavon is holding himself hostage and threatening everybody he's going to. I mean, which is just a a genius piece of theatre, really, isn't it? In a way, it, it's superb. <clears throat> it's superb, and uh, I love it. I love it. I just ah, look at that. There we go. There's our five minutes. Fantastic. Right now, you're taking for for the next film. You're taking me into new territory. So this is a film I've not seen. So we're jumping into 1997 for Henry Fool. Do you want to tell us where this fits into your film life? Yeah, you know what? I don't even know how I came across it. I, I think I got it on X Rental when I when I was in university. You know, Henry Fool by Hal Hartley and. I had read about it in Empire Magazine, I think. Okay. That it, it had won it won an award at Cannes, and um, and and Hal Hartley's name had sort of been 
dotted around because he was sort of that that same generation as the great indie wave of Soderbergh and Tarantino and and so Hal Hartley was there, but Hal Hartley was so so much more low key and strange and different and sort of what's the words I'm looking for? Not bland, uh, mundane. Yeah, um, but not and. You know, Amateur, I think, was his most famous film, I think, um, at the time. And um, I just watched it. I just watched it one day on a whim. And I was just absolutely taken aback by it because it's the most strange film. It's basically about this guy um, who's a, he's a garbage collector yeah. with absolutely no life and no personality who encounters the lodger who is living in the basement of the house he lives in with his mum and his dad, which is Henry Fool, who is this insanely garrulous guy who just can't stop talking and is is he a bullshit artist? You don't know. He just talks so eloquently. And he's also a complete hedonist who just he drinks, smokes, has sex with anything that he can find. And but the way Hal Harley does it, it's all through it means basically he Henry Fool encourages um, the garbage collector. I forgot his first name. Grim. Someone Grim, isn't it? Simon. And, um, Simon Grim. Yes. And um, he encourages him to write, and he ends up writing this poem that you never hear the words of this poem, but the poem affects everyone in this really dramatic way. Like a woman who doesn't speak starts to sing, and uh, people start to cry, or people suddenly start like having sex. <laughs> it's just this weird poem that is from the feedback you get from the people that read it it's almost like pornographic and stuff but you never get to hear what the words are and so his his career as a writer suddenly starts to go slowly up and up and up whereas Henry Fool who believes himself to be this incredible raconteur and uh, he's written his own memoir which is an incredible memoir which will blow the world apart he says but it turns out that's terrible and uh, he 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 become he becomes the garbage man, while Simon Grimm becomes a poet laureate. And but there's all all this stuff that's going on within it. But what really got me was the style of it. That like Simon Grimm like literally barely speaks to the entire film, and Henry Fool just speaks entirely to the entire film. And it's such a still film. And I'm I'm a writer that loves, or did love, loads and loads and loads of words. Mm. When I was doing theatre, I love words. And it was my revisiting after I moved to London of Henry Fool that made me change the way I wrote, it made me change the way I thought about writing and what I could do differently to convey all these stuff rather than churning out all these words that I loved. I thought I could do this differently. And it was it was almost entirely down to Henry Fool. <laughs> and oh, by the way, I love I love that about a film you can watch a while ago. And then when you're at a different stage of your life, you can rewatch it and it helps you reassess yeah. what you're doing. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the first time around, I watched in university and I, and I, I loved it. And I loved the Henry, I loved the Henry Poole part. But it was all the other parts that got me the second time I watched it. Mm. It's like Parker Posey is in it as the sister who's just like utterly frustrated by everything and really angry all the time. And, and then you've got Adrian Shelley who's, this overly aggressive character 
who just entirely hangs out in a in a in a convenience store with Kevin Corrigan and she makes Sam and Grimm kiss her bare ass at one point <laughs> in some sort of weird bullying. And but then they all read this poem and it changes them all in the state. It's it's a, it's, a, it's a profound film. It's a bizarre film. And it's a very sort of mundane film, except for Henry Poole, who just can't be anything but the opposite of all these people. And it's just such a hard film to explain. But I love it. And it changed me. So there we go. Well, I think you did. I think you did a grand job of trying to explain it. And certainly it was intriguing <laughs> enough, certainly from my point of view, to make me want to see it. It sounds like a belter. Um, no, it's, I love it. Now, that's your three films. You've told us about Dead and the Vine, which we all have fingers crossed. Wish you luck for where the sales agents and distributors and whoever else in the chain gets for everyone to see it and for UK premiere. But um, the three films are very different. Is there any? Do you think there's a thread that that puts them together? Because you pick they're your three films. Is there anything about them? Do you think that they've got in common? That may you know that when you look at them in the round, now you've talked about them together. I think if I was being, I don't know, I mean, I guess this is what translates to my work is it's about, it's they're all about lost men. Yeah. You get me? Because like obviously yeah, yeah, Bart yeah. is put into this and obviously the Waco kid, both men isolated and in a, in a world that they don't, they're not familiar with or they don't understand or they don't want to be in. Mm. Naked Fright is a very extreme version of that. Of yeah, these, yeah, yeah. It is literally a man in in a, in a descent to hell in a place that he des- desperately wants to get out of, but he but he seemingly can't, and it's his own fault as well. And uh, yeah, I mean, Henry Fool, it's these two men who, in their own very different ways, are isolated from their own realities. One is one is avoiding it. One is trying to absorb it too much. And uh, Henry Fool, I think. In, in, in a sort of roundabout way, it was quite an influence on Guardians when I was talking to David and Matt about their relationship and their characters. That, you know, what is Matt's character is very much isolated from his, from society, from his own life, and he's finding refuge in this house. And whereas David's character was a man filling his empty life full of lies and full of tales and stuff and it's mm. not dissimilar from heavy fool well i can't i can't, I can't compare the quality <laughs> um and um so yeah I, I think that's that's one sort of obvious strand i think there's a there's a there's a, a vein of humor that i appreciate through all three that aside from blazing saddles you wouldn't say heavy fool is definitely funny it's meant to be funny but to say it's a comedy would be, yeah. Jim and Wake and Fright is also funny, and it's definitely meant to be funny. But it is definitely not a comedy. No, it's, it's definitely it's a, humor. It's humor is definitely pitch black. If 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 you're going to yeah, find it funny, absolutely. And so I would say I love that kind of humor. I love that. I love that kind of. Um, I love the total shifts of all three of those films as well. Yeah. Whereas, you know, Blazing Saddles walks that amazing line of really quite dark and horrible moments where they undercut it with incredible humor. And, you know, Wake and Fright, it's sort of an almost inverse, you you know, has these uh, (laughs) these feasibly dark moments. 
where but they're still sort of kind of funny because these people are sort of ridiculous. Yeah, the, the the absurdity is what what sort of blows out of it, isn't it? In the end, it's like yeah. it's yeah. grim and it's vile, and then when you step back from the grim and vileness, you're like. That's absurd that people... Yeah, it's, it, it gets to an extreme <laughs> extremity of the film where you think, this is just insane now. This, this mm. is just crazy. And and um, I think Henry Fool, the characters are so extreme from each other uh, that, that everything happens in between. That There is so many shifts. There's so many bizarre things that happen in Henry Fool where you're just not expecting them because Henry Fool himself is an impulsive character that can barely contain his own you know, impulses, and uh, whereas Simon Grimm is the opposite. He doesn't dare act on anything mm. until, you know. So I'd well, say, look, you know, shifts, you know. Brilliant. Well, uh, it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving the sound of the Ritflix podcast. Thank you very much for having me back again. Always a pleasure. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com.